0: As a proud supporter of Parkinson's UK, the Focus on Why podcast is supporting this charity by including their Time for Can campaign in this episode. Can't work, can't walk, can't taste, can't talk, can't move, can't eat, can't remember, can't sleep, can't finish, feel ashamed, can't smile through the pain, can't stop the voices, can't make it stop. Parkinson's, the fastest growing neurological condition in the world, there is no cure. Yet we can fund, can fight, can discover, can unite, can transform, can live, can change, can give, can slow, can stop, can reverse, can cure. We can do, but we can't do it without you parkinson's uk together we can find a cure donate now at parkinsons.org.uk welcome to the focus on why podcast i'm amy rowlandson and i ask my guests one simple question why focusing on the importance of why i share with you the relatable uplifting and inspiring conversations i have with people from all walks of life This podcast will encourage you to focus on your why to enable and empower you to achieve the success you desire. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why. Today on the Focus on Why podcast, I am joined by Zoe Routh. Welcome Zoe. Hello Amy, so happy to be here. And where are you uh, dialing in from today? I am in Canberra, Australia. Well, it's evening for you and morning for for us here. So, well, for us, I say us, it's just me on the other end of the call. And Zoe is a leadership expert, a speaker, and an author. And we're going to explore more of Zoe's journey on this call today how exciting. <laughs> well, I, I hope so. We we were introduced by the lovely Diana Theodorus, whose podcast has recently come out as well and talk, talked about theatre and performance. And she said, you must speak to Zoe. So here we are exploring Zoe's journey. And I think probably the best thing to do is explain what it is you're doing right now, Zoe.
1: Right now, I'm sitting on a fitball. <laughs> But I don't think that's exactly what you meant. Um, Though football, I think that's a fad that's gone out of fashion now. But apart from sitting on my football and kind of bouncing up and down on it as I think, what I am doing now as a leadership expert, speaker, and author, as you said, is I work with CEOs and their teams on handling the people stuff in leadership. So when things go pear-shaped and the CEO is up late at night worrying about how Frank and Karen are at odds with each other, what I do is work with the, the leader and their team about understanding what the dynamics are and the skills and frameworks to navigate their way out of it. So I'm all about building fa- fabulous teams and great cultures at
0: work. And you call it the people stuff. I sure do. Because <laughs> everybody gets it. And it encapsulates
1: what? Well, when I say people stuff, you know, when I ask leaders, what's your biggest challenge, challenges they go, yeah, the people. Um, Every leader says work would be so much easier if it weren't for the people. And what they mean by that is that there are difficult behaviors at work. There are people who challenge you. There are people who resist what you have to say. There's people who don't get along. People who get sensitive or upset by um, things that were intentionally or unintentionally said. And trying to help people feel safe at work, help people feel satisfied at work, get people engaged at work are some of the challenges that leaders face. So anytime there's kind of like that sort of gritty interaction between people, that's that's the people stuff. And, you know, that's all the negative side. There's also the fabulous part of it too, like showing up to work and enjoying what you do and being part of a high-performing team that is just so fantastic and delicious. That's part of the people stuff as well.
0: And would you say it comes down to communication?
1: (sighs) No, not entirely. I mean, communication is at the pointy end of all the stuff that's going on underneath the surface, which is emotional stuff. And underneath all that emotional stuff are a whole bunch of frameworks and systems that create that emotional gump, which create the communication that is either on song or off song. Uh, so I think it's not just about the words you say or how you present the ideas. It's that's sort of the tip of the iceberg. Underneath of it is a whole bunch of things that go right down even further than that into what are the values that each person holds and what does the organization hold as its values and how it creates structures and systems built on those. So um, I think it's too simplistic to say it's communication. Uh, likewise, a lot of people say, you know, people stuff at work is just personality clashes and it's often not just personality clash. It's all those other complex systems and systematic things that,
0: cause all the trouble, the visible trouble. And it's interesting you talk about the values because people don't go to work to work. They go to fulfill their needs and their values. So essentially, as you say, it could, it's a, there's a whole load of things. It's not just a simple solution, but the values I think is a big piece.
1: Yeah. It's interesting when you ask that question, as I did with a group of um, leaders in the construction industry last week. And I said, what motivates you? What inspires you? So we talked about the motivation piece and in a small group, it varied. And for some, it was like, it's a lifestyle thing. Uh, you know, I come here to earn a wage so I can look after my family. So underneath that, if you scratch the surface on that, the values are around looking after the family. Um, are they aligned to the work? Or they want it to be interesting and challenging? That's also part of the reason why they show up to work. Um, So there's a there's an emotional payoff. Um, Is it always based on values? Well, the happiest people are the ones that choose workplaces that align with their values and help fulfill, uh, fulfill their values and the mission that they've built on top of that. So it's an interesting. one. I'm not sure how many people consciously think about their values when they go to work.
0: Um, I would be surprised if there was a lot. They may not be conscious, but they're still there lurking. They're just not necessarily aware of what they are. And that's often where there's a mismatch potentially. With the um, the time horizons that people have, the, the CEO and the people that are working for the CEO, they have very different time horizons and, and sort of prospects because the CEO's got that vision.
1: You mean in terms of what's their, what their projected uh, realm of influence? Is that what you mean by time horizon?
0: Yeah, in terms of thinking about, the the people who are working have different objectives for going to work, whereas the, mm. the CEO has an incredible vision. This is their sort of baby. This is their, their business that they, they really want to take all the way through and, and then beyond. Whereas the people who are coming to work, are they just thinking it's a means to an end potentially? Oh, that would be a very sad workplace
1: <laughs> with the, the CEO is the only one with the vision and everybody else is just like laboring there. Uh, I think. It's not. I, I disagree with that premise that the CEO has the vision and is working to a different timeline. The most successful organizations and teams are where everybody shares that vision and that's a co-constructed one. I don't think the leader or the CEO has to be the one that plucks it out of wherever, um, say this is where we're going. In fact, I think it's best if if people contribute to it and are therefore buying into that vision because it's something that they all aspire to create. And whatever they're doing, the immediate is moving them towards that. If you're talking about CEO who's a business owner CEO, like they founded the company and the, and set forth, they have maybe more at stake in it emotionally, um, but potentially not. Like there's a lot of founder CEOs who've been ousted um, by their own company that they set up. I'm thinking about Travis, from uh, Uber and more recently Adam Newman of WeWork in a public ousting um, that was f- very interesting. So, in that case, you know, does the vision of the company implode? Well, in WeWork's case, probably. Uh, in Uber's case, no, I don't think so.
0: And how is it that the stakeholders are involved in the people stuff? Stakeholders, you mean stakeholders in a company? all parties, in terms of the people stuff, you're, you're talking about so many different elements. How do you sort of break down the separate elements and, and help deal with those, help the people to work together? Oh, wow.
1: Um <clears throat> Depends, like if, if I'm starting to work with a team. So, so say, for example, I'm working with a new client, which is a um, it's an industry association. And so they have members who are their primary stakeholders. And they also have the broader public who are the clients of their members. And so in discussions with them, we talk, and they have their own internal team. So I'm working with the team on the team dynamic with the overlay of who are our members and what are their needs and what are they facing. So it's it's an empathy map in some ways to understand who we're we serving and who are they serving. And I think that ripple effect is, is pretty important. And some organizations are quite complex. I'm working with another not-for-profit which has a number of different complex social programs, when I talk to ask them about their stakeholders, they're like, well, there's lots. <laughs> there's the people that who come and use our services. Then there's the other providers with whom we collaborate. And those same partners are people with whom we c- compete. And so what we do in trying to figure out uh, what are the arising dynamics, both po- positive and negative, is find out where the friction points are. So what is it in the, all those interactions that causes problems? Where are those hot spots? And when we find the hot spots, we're like, okay, so there's a hot spot in terms of conflict or competition that's not working so well. What are the systems at play that are creating that friction? Uh, so I'll give you an example. This one case study I did where it looked like two executives were having a big conflict at the top, and it looked from the outside like a personality problem. And when we dug and dug under the layers of it all. It turns out their remuneration uh, system was what was driving the conflict because each of those executives was rewarded for their team's performance. And so they were highly personally motivated to make sure that their team was highly successful meeting or exceeding all their targets, which ended up pitting the executives against one another. And instead of, being collaborative and cooperative when it came to resources, both human and uh, other IT access and so on, they were not at all collaborative because it was like, this is gonna affect my bottom line, my paycheck. And so they ended up having very pointy elbows with each other. So from the outside, just on the surface, looked like they just hated each other, but really what was driving that was how they were paid. So if they changed the remuneration system it could create a different kind of dynamic, one that's more collaborative. Um, I think that's such a fascinating one. I see this a lot in professional services firms too, where how lawyers or accountants are remunerated drives particular behaviors, which are not always helpful uh, to team dynamic. And in some cases here in Australia, what we've discovered drives unethical behavior. So the Royal Commission into the banking and finance sector discovered that The remuneration structure um, for people was driving them to do things they wouldn't necessarily otherwise have done, like set up fake accounts uh, for dead people or charge clients for services that they weren't getting. That kind of thing is just appalling. You think, who are these unethical, greedy people? And they weren't necessarily unethical or greedy. It's just that their systems, when it meant the difference between being able to buy groceries that week or just fudging the numbers a little, they fudge the numbers uh, because changing the system when you're a cog in it is very difficult. Um, so the Royal Commission revealed all on on that one, which is was quite fascinating. I think if people are to have a look at what drives difficult people dynamics, I think the best place they can do is just unpack how are people organizing themselves at work and is that working for you or not? And that's a good source of, of pinpointing your pain problems.
0: And how have you found the pandemic has created problems or, or maybe even just illuminated issues? In the
1: short term, what leaders have been telling me is that it was a galvanizing force. So rally together, this is a crisis mode and there's nothing like um, a common adversity to build that strong connection with people. I know this from my outdoors work, um, my, my work in the outdoors over many years is that when we go through adversity and challenge together, we become very connected with one another. And that's sort of the initial response was that. Then as the excitement, quotation marks, (laughs) around the pandemic faded um, and it became, this is the thing that we have to adjust to, uh, people became very exhausted. Just the ongoing uncertainty, um, the lack of hard answers on things and wanting to know when will it end and not having the answer to that wore people down and so what leaders are telling me now eight eight or nine months into it is that they're struggling with disengagement, uh, loss of productivity, fear in some places of going back into the office, uh, reluctance to do so, um, resistance to giving up the work from home liberties as some people enjoyed it and other people are like hanging to go back to work into the office because their home wasn't that great, um, wasn't great set up for work from home offices, and plus they enjoyed the social aspect of being in the office. So there's a whole cacophony, medley, those were two different things, (laughs) a whole mixture, let's use that word, of challenges that leaders are facing now as we move into the eight months of the grind through COVID. And I think it's starting to erode previously excellent cultures, and it's what leaders need to do is reestablish expectations and boundaries around how we work. Whatever that, whatever format that is now, it's like okay, this is what was, and this is what is. What do we want moving forward? And to renegotiate what what people want and how they're going to work together is is the work that leaders need to do right now
0: in order to navigate the next little bit of the pandemic. And you talk about eroding excellent cultures. How is that manifesting?
1: Uh, Mostly through disengagement. and leaders feeling disconnected from their people, not really knowing what the issues are. If there are issues, they don't have their finger on the pulse as much as they did before. They're not sure if people are undermining or back channeling because they can't see it or feel it or hear it like they could in an office. Like in an office, you could you could feel the whispers. You can you can notice when people are like go red faced when you show up in a room because they've been talking behind your back. In working from home arrangements, you have no idea what people are doing because they're not doing it on a Zoom chat with you. (laughs) So there's a little bit of that. So the disconnection, the I don't know what's really going on is part of it. And not really knowing and not really being able to help their staff deal with the emotional overwhelm. That's been part of it, too. So a lot of HR professionals in particular have been finding that they are doing Mental health first aid, uh, not only for the staff, but for the executives, because now the executives are meant to be experts in that. So how do you do the mental health first aid with your staff because they're anxious, overworked or they have a difficult work life balance and they've got to bring all this personal stuff to work because it's all in the one place. Um, So that's a little bit of some of the erosion that's happening, just the the emotional wear and tear on people as they drag their way through this stuff.
0: So, where you've been sort of working in the field of of people stuff, uh, there's been sort of probably perennial issues. Has this year been a sort of a a really different year for you? Well,
1: from a technical point, yeah. So, in March, that sort of canceled realigned, canceled a lot of work and realigned new work. So, in terms of how I deliver to clients, change in the short term. So, there was all that kind of technical stuff, which is not um, unusual. It was common to everybody, I should say. In terms of the people dynamics, I guess what I'm finding is that there's more of an interest in people dynamics. There's more of an interest in making sure that the managers have the skills, the emotional intelligence skills to have difficult conversations. Um, They want their leaders to know how to motivate and supervise people, whether it's on the ground or... Remotely, I mean, the interest in how do I manage people remotely has obviously had a big spike. And yet the fundamentals of our people really need to know how to do people management is is pretty important. That's sort of rising to the fore now. So a lot of inquiries from um, client, new clients these days are around, right, well, we've been through this. Uh, two things need to happen. We want to make sure that our culture is going to be okay. So we need to do some alignment around that. Kind of a culture reset and the other aspect is all right strategy well we had a five-year plan and we were about to do one and it's like well can we just have a recovery strategy (laughs) and the two those two things the culture and strategy piece what i'm seeing that those are becoming prioritized together as opposed to what happened previously is that leaders would prioritize strategy and the really good ones would then talk about culture So now it's a bit, we need both. We can't talk strategy without culture because we can see that if people are exhausted and overwhelmed, then they're not going to be able to deliver on whatever plan we put together. So that's sort of an emerging rising trend, Um, the the focus on people dynamics, um, empathy skills, management skills, and the balance of culture and
0: strategy. So how did this all start? How did you get into people stuff? Yeah. many moons ago.
1: Many moons ago in Canada. So I said I was living in Australia. I've been in Australia for 24 years. So my first real job was at a summer camp, uh, first as a summer camp counselor and then as a canoe trip leader. And I took teams of young people out into the bush for weeks at a time um, in the wilderness of Northwest Ontario. And it was in my adventures at summer camp that I fell in love with two things. One, the wilderness, and it's just spectacular beauty and the amazing adventures you can have there. And two, hanging out with people. I just had the best time. First, as a as a participant on canoe trips myself, on a three-week and a six-week canoe trip, just being able to have shared adventure with other people in, in a team and working through the ups and downs of all that and the connections and intimacy and trust that you built through that shared experience is incredibly powerful, a huge sense of belonging um, and camaraderie. And I just loved it. And I decided, I went to university and I studied honors English literature. (laughs) And I remember thinking, what am I going to do with this degree? And I saw two paths. One was I could continue to study English literature and do a master's and a PhD and go down the academic path. I was quite good at that kind of study. Then I sort of realized, you know, English literature is reading about people having lives. And I worked out, I actually wanted to have a life myself. (laughs) I wanted to be the heroine of my own novel, I suppose. And so I went, you know, the real work that I really love doing is with people in the outdoors. So I looked around to find out how could I do this full time? And I had spoken to a friend who worked for a season at Outward Bound Malaysia. I'm like, what is Outward Bound? And she told me it was about leadership and people development in the outdoors. And I discovered that there were Outward Bound schools all around the world. And I was like, oh, my goodness, that's fantastic. There were ones in Canada and the U.S. and far-flung places like uh, New Zealand and Australia. Now, as it happens, one summer I had this romantic fling with a Kiwi, a New Zealander, and went, Well, maybe I should try and apply for Outward Bound New Zealand. (laughs) And so not knowing anything about time zones, I rang up Outward Bound New Zealand at 2 o'clock in the morning their time uh, with a very frosty reception from somebody crazy enough to answer the phone. Said, hello, what do you want? I'm like, oh, I'm interested in a job. And they were kind enough to actually give me a few answers. And they said, well, we need a two year commitment. And I thought two years, that's forever. Um, And I was so mortified that I'd woken them up at two in the morning. I couldn't call them back to discuss any further. So I went, well, Australia's just over the way. Maybe I'll try there. And I made sure I got the time zones right before I called Outward Bound Australia. And they wanted a 13 month commitment, which still seemed like forever. Never been away from home more than two months over the summer. So 13 months was going to be a long time without seeing my family. But in any case, I went, right, okay, I'll I'll have a crack. And they said, yep, we like you. We think you've got enough skills and experience. Come on over. I went, okay. And uh, that launched me on the big long flight over to Australia in 1996. And my first job over here was with Outward Bound. And that was kind of like my first full-time professional role uh, doing people development in the outdoors day in, day out, year on year. And I was there for nine years. that's sort of like the stepping stone, a couple of stepping stones to where I am now. Um, Had lots of different jobs there, first out in the field, so taking people out into uh, multi-stage adventure journeys, Um, high school kids along with corporates and leaders in different organizations. Um, and then I was head of staff and training. So I did a lot of the hiring, firing and training of staff, which I loved. It was a bit more reminiscent of my roles at summer camp where I headed up the, the canoe tripping program after a few years leading canoe trips. Um, and then I sat on the executive for most of my nine years that I was there. Then I left there and I, um, In the midst of all that, I started up my own executive coaching business. (laughs) So part-time at Outward Bound, I went, fell in love with the modality of coaching and hired my own coach. And he's helped me sort out a lot of my own challenges. I was a very high stress individual, very type A personality. And that was, was a fast track to burnout. And I wanted to know how to be a better leader and how to lead myself better. So I hired a coach and it was great. He showed me a bunch of different frameworks, which were kind of transformative in terms of how I could run my life and have a different focus and experience of things and help me make some pretty solid decisions for myself in my work. And I thought, this is fabulous. I love this. So decided that I'd become a coach. So I did that on the side while I was working at Rebound and kept doing that part-time when I took on my next job here in Australia, which was with the Australian Rural Leadership Foundation. I have to say it deliberately because it's hard to say with a Canadian accent, (laughs) rural, Um, much easier with an Aussie accent, which I won't even try to say. And there I was running, developing leadership programs for uh, a whole bunch of different industry sectors in rural and regional Australia, like the wine industry, rice industry, uh, cotton mining, and all around the traps. And that really advanced my understanding of leadership at all sorts of different levels, from representational leadership, like advocacy roles, through to leading an industry to leading complex organizations and c- complex issues like there are heaps of in Australian agriculture. And uh, and then about seven years ago, threw my towel in there and put up my own shingle and decided to run my own leadership development business, which included executive coaching, leadership training, and lots of facilitation speaking. And then I started writing a few books. And my latest one is book number four. <laughs>
0: That brings us to present day. <laughs> so what made you decide to move from the outside to the inside? Well, it's fabulous that you picked that up because when I was um at Outward
1: Bound, Australia, I was like, I need a business name for my coaching practice. And I just brainstormed all these names and words associated with the outdoors. And Compass was one and inner was the other, and Inner Compass was the name of my business. And such was it then became unknown unknown to me was that Stephen Covey also had an inner compass as one of his key metaphors for his work I'm like oh so deflated when I found that out I'm like oh well there you go I'm in good company anyway um so that was the outward bound to inner compass journey and I think the question of what led me from the outdoors to the inner world if you mean it from a like orientation um The inner work that I did in coaching was really powerful in terms of changing how I saw the world, how I acted in the world. And it was an inside out kind of journey, whereas the outdoor experience can sometimes be an outside in journey. So you have these spectacular experiences and you reflect on them. And the inner out journey, which is the coaching discovery, the self-awareness discovery is is different. It's the reverse in some ways. Interestingly, though, I've still incorporated outdoor work in what I do these days, and I experience the outdoors with my clients in a different kind of way. I, I facilitate the out, in the outdoors as, as a crucible um, or a cradle. I guess from crucible to cradle is the best way to describe the change of how I've experienced the outdoors in my work. So it used to be a crucible. So the work at Outward Bound and even on the canoe trips in, in Ontario were about difficulty, challenge, overcoming, pushing self, so crucible, all about overcoming challenge. The cradle part nowadays is less about trying to strive and push and endure and more about relaxing, grounding, centering, and allowing the beautiful outdoor spectacle to uplift, to enliven, uh, to produce a sense of awe. And it's interesting, the science around the states of awe, and I think anything with a horizon gives you that sense. And the research shows that when we experience awe, activity in the prefrontal lobe decreases. And the prefrontal lobe is our sense of self; um, it's where our rational thought often happens. So when that lowers, we have a less of a barrier between ourself and the rest of the world. So we have the sense of deep connection a deep wonder, and this allows us to feel more comfortable with uncertainty, it allows new connections and new ideas to percolate to the surface, because we have less of our active conscious brain controlling the thought processes and more of our subconscious kind of percolating to the top. So um, that's a little bit of the outward to inward journey and from crucible to cradle in terms of how I experience the outdoors now. And plus I'm a bit older now and who needs to flog themselves climbing up mountains? Oh my goodness. (laughs) I like a little bit more glamping these days than hardcore struggle town. Thanks very much.
0: (laughs) So I love all the sort of facets that we're exploring between the the outdoors, the indoors, the outside, the inside, the outward, the inward. How much of a journey have you done personally as well with this? Mm. Heaps.
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, I had, in my professional career, just some very powerful, deeply challenging personal awareness moments, you know, from, I think, one of my my friends and my boss at summer camp when he gave me feedback. I remember he said, it threw a letter, like my final evaluation was a letter in the mail when I'd already moved to Australia. And he said, oh, you know, you're sometimes overly emotional and I was reading it, I went, overly emotional, what the hell is he talking about? And then I went, oh, that. <laughs> um, and I found that hard, you know, to be given feedback like you're too emotional, because I got it again when I first started at working it out, I'm like, too emotional, is that a problem? And I worked out, yeah, it probably was, you know, it's kind of skews your perception and puts up blinkers. So those kind of little moments, which were quite confronting, and probably the biggest self-awareness journey happened in 2005 when I got sick with cancer. And that was a real sort of stop the ship. What the hell's going on? How did I get here? What does this mean for me? Who am I? What do I want now? Um, How am I going to be through this? How am I going to be after this? So that was a real confronting... Well, crucible, really. I burnt away a lot of stuff. I didn't need any more in my life. I um, disengaged from a lot of volunteer roles that I was doing, that was all consuming, just adding to pressure and busyness, and dropped a lot of that. So that was one of the other really important self revealing experiences. And now I think it's less, I, I lurch less from one confronting experience to another and more kind of how would I describe it? Look for it or wake to it every day. Look for those gritty points and, and their they're experiences of shadow. Anytime we are discontented or disgruntled, it's an opportunity to explore. So the self-awareness experience is less jarring and more curious these days. And I'm uh, probably a little bit more gentle myself than I have been previously in terms of um, thought I was doing the right thing and striving and pushing and being very blinkered in my view to try to be more open to perspectives that aren't my initial one and be open to having my perspective challenged and upgraded um, through interactions with others or even through reflection and reading and because um, i I don't think I get it right all the time. I like to have opinions on stuff. Like I'm doing a podcast interview tomorrow with a friend of mine and on the agenda is U.S. politics. And we both have opinions and we want to explore that. Do I think I'm right? Part of me really thinks I am right. (laughs) and Part of me goes, I can't be all right. Um, I'm only one brain and there's 300 million of them or so in the U.S. And they've all got slices of the puzzle too. So I wanna use curiosity to find the patterns there. So I think curiosity is helping me navigate this more and humility. I try to remember that as an important thing. I, I think I was pretty arrogant in some ways. Um, I don't know, well, actually, I think I know. <laughs> I know I was very arrogant in my earlier days about what I thought I knew and I knew best and my experience was such and such. And that kind of blinds you as well. And what I love about um, trying to remember humility I always remember the story about Roman generals when in ancient Rome when they were being celebrated for a triumph which means they were returning to Rome and they were being thrown a massive party to celebrate their vanquishing of ex people and and they were getting full honors and it was it was a good show and you think you might be tempted to be a little bit you know up yourself <laughs> if that was for you and so the generals what they did to remind them that hubris is a bad thing is that they had a slave ride behind them on a chariot and the slave's job was to continually whisper in their ears they paraded down the streets to roaring cheering crowds remember you are mortal and so the slave was tasked with saying this to the generals just to remind them you know you don't have it all worked out you are just a man and uh you know don't get ahead of yourself kind of thing and this is, of course, what was cited as Julius Caesar's great downfall, is that his hubris made him too brash. And so he thought he was, oh, what's the word? Um, nothing could get to him.
0: Invincible. That, thank you.
1: <laughs> That's the word, invincible. And he wasn't. Um, so I think humility and curiosity and care for people around me are the three things that help me navigate a different
0: kind of self-awareness these days, a different kind of insight and journey. Well, I think that Shakespeare says it really well, which is a fool to think he is wise, but the wise man knows himself to be a fool in terms of, you know, we are always learning, we're always growing and, and not to think that we know it all. And certainly the position of curiosity is a great one because in that place, you can't be fearful. Absolutely. And it's funny that you raised that as a
1: quote. When I was doing research for people stuff, I researched a lot of quotes like that. And there are dozens from Voltaire, from Plato, from not Plato, Aristotle saying exactly that, you know, is that I think Voltaire said, if I know that anything, it's that I know nothing. And the same idea. The more we think we know, the more sure we can know that we don't know as much as we think we know. So, um Yeah, don't close yourself off to other people's point
0: of view. (laughs) Absolutely. So what is next on the horizon for Zoe Ralph? I've been thinking about this a lot as
1: the pandemic has been a great opportunity for reassessment. A, because a lot of work just got put on hold for a long time. So things went quiet pretty quick. So it's like, hmm, navel gazing. (laughs) How do I really want to navigate this world in my life? And I think what I'm settling on is I want to be able to do more deep thinking and more deep writing. I think the future holds more of that in store for me. I think there'll be less hurry, less worry, less pushing and more allowing, unfolding and savoring. So I was thinking about less about what I want to be doing and more how I want to feel and experience the world moving forward. And I think that kind of tasting of the world, that savoring piece is more of what I'm after these days. I'm not after exhilaration. Um, so like the exciting adventures, not exciting adventures, adventures surely, but it's more for the enjoying the vista and the company and just the experience of it, as opposed to the wildness of it, which is what was there in my past. So I think that's sort of what's next. I think I will continue to do the the shape of the work that I'm doing now for a couple of years. Um, and my husband's a great model for me in terms of how to live life. Like he's a very relaxed guy. he's a very happy guy, and he is really curious about the world too. and he just enjoys the day each day. And I think that's awesome. I think for a long time, I was not that I was more about what's next, got to prove myself, got to try this, got to climb that mountain, got to, you know, win that client. And ah, I'm a bit over that now. (laughs) I want to be connected to people. I want to have community and I want to experience the beauty of this world on a day-to-day basis in daily moments, as well as in the bigger, grander, experiences. I've got a trek planned for next year. Um, assuming that COVID-19 doesn't go a bit pear-shaped again in Australia, then I've got a three-week trip booked on the Larapinta Trail, which is an extraordinary walk in Central Australia. And I am so excited to do that. So that's sort of from the near, near-ish term. But every day I just kind of enjoy and appreciate who I'm with and what I'm doing. And I want more of that deliciousness in my life.
0: Well, I can certainly see a book there in the the title I wrote down, which is what you, to summarize what you're saying was less hurry, less, less hurry, less worry, get over, stop trying to prove yourself. (laughs) I better make a note of that too. (laughs)
1: Less hurry, less worry. Get over yourself.
0: <laughs> I love that. I think it's a great, it's a great message. And, you know, obviously, you know, you've got four books under the belt, so there's plenty more to come, I'm sure. Oh, probably. I, writing is, is um, it's a delightful process
1: when you're not trying to write a book. <laughs> writing a book is, is quite challenging. But um, my last book, I took a writing course uh, to help me with it. And made me fall all in love with words again. I hadn't felt that way for a long time. So, definitely, there's more books on the horizon for sure.
0: So, maybe that English literature degree was worth it in the end. Yeah, it's finally, finally, proven useful. <laughs> it's funny how yeah. we come full circle. Oh, goodness. Yeah, I
1: was thinking about that, the writing thing. And I remember it was grade three. How old are you in grade three? Eight or nine or something? I don't know. And I remember we had to write short stories. And I wrote a story about a pirate who hated dog poo. (laughs) Something like that. It was some random story about a pirate and dog poo. And uh, I remember showing it to the teacher's aide who read it, who just laughed his ass off through the whole thing. I'm like, what's so funny about my story? Because it was like genuine concern about dog poo. And then I just remembered in one of the opening, one of the early chapters of my latest book, there is a story on dog poo. So, yeah, it's <laughs> hopefully dog poo isn't the theme for my life, <laughs> but certainly it's shown up again years later. Must be something unresolved that I need
0: to pay attention to. <laughs> well, it's funny because you said when you would, you had a choice after finishing your degree, you said you either had one route which was to go through to the academia route, or you said that you know live a life. If, you know, people were having lives and that's what you wanted to do. So you've done that and, you know, you certainly now can write about it.
1: That's so amazing. Yeah, I hadn't actually thought about that, those two paths diverging and then coming back together. Oh, I don't have to journal on this now. <laughs> Dog poo and, and bloody academia is all coming back to me all at once in one hit. Oh, woo. <laughs> Uh, What about the pirate? Don't forget the pirate. Oh, the pirate. Yeah. I don't know how that fits in there, but I'll have, I'll have a go and see what comes up. (laughs) Maybe our next book is going to feature a pirate.
0: That's brilliant. Well, maybe it was you on your canoe trips, really, that you were the pirate. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly wore a lot of bandanas, that's for sure. (laughs) Excellent. So, I mean, it's just been incredible, Zoe, exploring the sort of journey of, of, of your sort of being self-aware of, of what you've achieved and how you've taken yourself through that it's it's been really fascinating to sort of chart it and and sort of hear it from a different perspective you know sometimes as you know you telling the story you hear it back and when I said those words back to you you sort of take it from a different frame and, and that's what I love about these conversations it can go in whole different routes but ultimately your life is, is there's been that sort of thread going through it all the way you just don't often see it Yeah, that's right.
1: Not until you start speaking it aloud because somebody's asked you about it. It's like, oh, yeah, there's that little thread weaving around its little thing. Mm, Yeah, this has been fascinating from from me too. (laughs) How would people get in touch with you, Zoe? Uh, Okay, you can come to Planet Zoe, which is my website, zoerouth.com, Z-O-E-R-O-U-T-H.com. That's sort of the springboard to everything where my podcast and all my blog articles are. Uh, I'm active pretty much daily on LinkedIn, so you can find me on LinkedIn. And you can listen to my podcast, the Zoe Routh Leadership Podcast. And occasionally I show up on Twitter and Instagram. But uh, Planet Zoe website and LinkedIn and the podcast are probably your best bets.
0: Maybe you should rebrand your podcast Planet Zoe. That sounds way cool. (laughs) Does, doesn't it? Okay, I'll make a note of that too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's brilliant. And and I love I love being t- talking all about the people stuff. That's been really fascinating. I feel that there's probably so much more we could have explored there, but it's it's been it's great to sort of dip it, our toes into it today. What would you be your final words, Zoe? Yeah, be kind to yourself.
1: I think um my very first newsletter article I wrote for my business in two thousand and two, maybe it was 2000 or 2002, 20 years ago anyway. And it was like the self first principle, which is just look after yourself first. You know, that's the starting point for your personal journey, for your leadership journey, and to be kind in that. And I keep learning that lesson <laughs> over and over again. So it must be an important one. And I think there's there's a lot going on in the world and we need each other and we need our, we need we need to be kind to ourselves first so that there's more of us to share around.
0: Thank you for listening to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave me a five-star Apple podcast review. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook, and become a member of my inspiring, uplifting, and positive Focus on Why Facebook group. I help people to focus on their why with clarity, uniting their passion with their purpose with a plan to create the life they truly desire. If you would like me to help you focus on your why, then please book a free 20-minute coaching call via candidly.com forward slash Amy Rowlandson. And if you haven't already, please sign up for the Friday Focus weekly newsletter via my website, amyrowlandson.com. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why.